Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Um, just one notice before we start. And you'll, you'll see on the back of the white bulletin the services over the next few weeks. So there is no service here next Sunday morning. You need to know that. Uh, next service is Christmas Day and then the 31st of December. And it's a slightly strange time of year for us because with a significant number of students, the population here does tend to drop over Christmas. So uh, just follow those dates carefully in January because we are closed for two Sundays before we start again on the 21st of January. And then um, I suppose it comes to all of us in the end, but I've been wondering why I've been losing my place in the sermons recently. And having had my eyes tested, it's come to that moment. So uh, you're here on a, on a red letter day. I hope it won't put you off, and uh, I hope it'll keep me on track. So, uh, White has prayed for us. Can I ask you please to turn to page 741 in the Bible? Luke 19, right-hand column, bottom of the page. And at the same time, please to keep open the outline on the inside of the bulletin, uh, which will tell you where we're going in the next few minutes. Well, one afternoon, uh, King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra were out walking on the country estate in Sandringham, and all of a sudden the, the Queen stumbled and sprained her ankle. Uh, in great pain, she, she limped along uh, rather slowly, hanging on to her husband's shoulder. Uh, but eventually it began to get dark, and they realised that they needed help. Uh, there was a small cottage nearby, and the king went up to it, and he knocked on the door. A voice from inside called out, Who's there? It's King Edward. Please, can we come in? Back came the reply, Don't be ridiculous. Uh, Stop messing about. Go away, leave me alone. The king, of course, was shocked. Nobody had ever spoken to him like that before. And so he knocked again. And immediately the man inside replied rather crossly, What do you want? I'm telling you, I am the king. Please let me in. By now the, the man inside was getting extremely angry. I'll teach you not to torment an honest man trying to get some sleep. And so he picked up a stick and he opened the door. But there, on the doorstep, was the king. Of course, the man was uh, deeply ashamed. He, he couldn't apologise enough. And he, he brought them in. He sent for a doctor to attend to the Queen. And for the rest of his life, he took great delight in telling other people what had happened. And he would always conclude with the same words. He would say, and to think, I almost didn't let him in. Now that's the kind of situation we've got in our text this morning. What do you do when Jesus comes? Of course, here in South Africa, we're naturally cautious, aren't we, about letting anybody in. Uh, when the doorbell rings, we first of all want to know who's there. But that's the atmosphere we've got in this part of Luke 19. Uh, Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem ever since chapter 9 and verse 51. And since it's at least three years since we looked at that verse, I'm going to ask you please to keep a finger in chapter 19 and turn back 
to chapter 9 on page 732. Page 732, the left-hand column and the bottom of the page, verse 51, very important verse. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now when we were studying that verse, we said at the time that this was never just a journey to Jerusalem. It's a journey to heaven. That's his true destination. The time is approaching for Jesus to be received back into heaven where he always was with the Father before he became man. And the last earthly stopping place on that journey is Jerusalem. Because the way back to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began leads through the cross and through the tomb. This is what it's going to cost the Son of Man to seek and to save the lost. You remember that's how Jesus described his mission all the way back in chapter 19, verse 10. And the cross was the means by which he was going to do it. Now, the city of Jerusalem plays a very important role in the Bible. Uh, The word Jerusalem means literally the city of peace. Uh, It was captured from the Jebusites by King David who made it into his capital city. And in the Old Testament, God had promised that his king, uh, the person that he was going to send to sort out all the world's problems, would be a king in David's line. So can you see that When Jesus came to present his claim to be the king on David's throne, he had to come to the city of Jerusalem. There was nowhere else where he could present that claim. And that is how you and I are to understand these verses in the second half of chapter 19. So please come back there now. Because these verses present the claims of Jesus of Nazareth to be the son of David and the son of God. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, not everyone is getting it. Uh, In Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that the, the whole city was stirred as Jesus approached and people were asking themselves, well, who is this? You see, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, that is the key question. Who is this man? So let's take that question that people were asking then and let's answer it from the 20 verses in front of us this morning. And if we do that, the first thing that we learn is that this is the King of Peace. The King of Peace. Verses 28 to 36. Now, the the episode with the cult in the story is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Jesus knows that down the road in the next village, there's going to be a cult that nobody's ever ridden. And he tells two of his disciples to go and get it, and what to say if they're challenged. Now, what on earth is really going on here? 
Well, let me say that there's absolutely no evidence anywhere in the Bible that Jesus had made a deal with the owners. Rather, what's happening here is that Jesus is demonstrating his lordship. He knows precisely what's going to happen beforehand, not just with the cult, but also when he gets to Jerusalem. He is the Lord. Because he is the Lord, everything belongs to him. And as far as the cult is concerned, you'll notice that we're told twice in the passage, the Lord needs it. Verse 31, verse 34. But why does the Lord need it? Why does Jesus need the cult? Well, because he is consciously and very deliberately fulfilling a very important Old Testament prophecy. So again, keep a finger in Luke 19 and turn back with me, please, to Zechariah chapter 9, page 670. Zechariah chapter 9, page 670. And this time we're in the right-hand column and at the bottom of the page. Verse 9 is the key verse. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now pause on that, stay there. You see, Jesus consciously and very deliberately enters Jerusalem on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, because he is claiming to be the king in that prophecy, in verse 9. Now we know both from the Gospels and from Jewish history that uh, during the Roman occupation, the Passover, which was when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the Passover was a time of kind of intense nationalistic feeling, I suppose, rather like the ANC rally this weekend. And throughout Luke's account, we've seen that many, many people had political expectations that when God's king finally came, he would bring in a political kingdom and push the Romans out. Now, while Jesus very definitely is affirming his sovereignty, he also wants to make it crystal clear that he hasn't come to lead a revolt. He's come in peace to bring peace. And the only blood that's going to be shed will be his blood. And so the procession begins, uh, the crowd spread their cloaks on the road for him to ride over as a sign of submission to his authority. But, but how will Jesus exercise that authority and what kind of authority is it anyway? Well, Zechariah tells us in the very next verse, verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. So there's going to be no fighting. He, notice this, that is the king in verse 9, he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river 
to the ends of the earth. Now verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. I wonder if you can see just how amazing this is. You see, the full picture that Zechariah is giving to us is of the king of peace entering the city of peace, riding on a colt. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will be universal because it will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And his kingdom of peace will set prisoners free through the blood of God's covenant. Now, my dear friends, all of that was fulfilled in the death of Jesus on the cross. And so by entering Jerusalem like this, Jesus is claiming to be the king of peace who makes peace between God and man by shedding his blood for our sins on the cross. Who is this? He is the king of peace. Do you know that peace? Well, come back to Luke 19 on page 742. Who is this? Secondly, he is the Lord of glory. And here we're in verses 37 to 40. As the procession comes over the brow of the Mount of Olives, there's this kind of spontaneous outburst of praise. Verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now can you see that Luke is saying that the miracles were a major ingredient in the crowds coming to recognise Jesus as God's King. That's why Jesus did them. They were signposts to his identity. You see, when God brought Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus, you remember that he provided manna for them in the desert. He fed them supernaturally. He gave them bread from heaven. And the Old Testament says that when God's king comes, he's going to do the same thing. So, why did Jesus take one small boy's packed lunch and break the bread and fish and multiply it supernaturally to feed 5,000 men? Well, he was proving that he is God's promised king. That was the whole point of the miracle. Again, in the book of Psalms, It says that only God can calm the raging of the sea, Psalm 107. So why did Jesus stand up in the boat and say to the wind and to the waves, Peace, be still. I mean, was that just a gratuitous display of magical power? No, of course it wasn't. It was to show the disciples that he is God, because only God can calm the raging of the sea. And Jesus does it with a word. 
Now the only conclusion that you can draw from that is that Jesus is God. This is the Lord of glory. Now that is why in verse 38 the crowd of disciples gave him the greeting that was specifically reserved in the Old Testament for God's king. Can you see verse 38? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's actually a quotation from Psalm 118. And it's very interesting that when that psalm was used in Israel's history, it was pronounced by the priest on the people as they brought their sacrifices to the temple. And that, of course, is precisely what Jesus is doing. He will be the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who's going to fulfil everything that Psalm 118 was speaking about. And indeed we're going to see in a moment that when he reaches Jerusalem, the first thing he does is go straight into the temple. But of course for very different reasons and with very different consequences from what the people were expecting. And so now as he approaches Jerusalem, the the disciples, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, acknowledge Jesus as their king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But not everyone saw Jesus that way. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Isn't that interesting? The crowds are rejoicing and the religious leaders are complaining. And in the midst of all of this rejoicing, there's this kind of note of bitterness that that gets louder and louder throughout Holy Week. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why did the Pharisees object? Well, at one level, the the claim to be king was politically dangerous. Uh, The Pharisees were anxious not to provoke the Romans. Um, The last thing they wanted to do was to goad the Romans into some kind of military response. But what the Pharisees were really angry about was that this crowd of disciples were claiming that Jesus is God's promised king. And as far as they were concerned, that was totally over the top. And so what the Pharisees were actually saying to Jesus was this. Tell the crowd they've got this wrong. Tell them that you are not God's king. And look at what Jesus says in verse 40. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Isn't that a magnificent answer? Don't let anybody ever try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. That is sheer nonsense. It is on every single page of the Gospels. And so Jesus doesn't tell them to be quiet. He says, if they don't acknowledge it, the stones are going to cry out because it's true. I am the Lord of glory. I am God's King. This is actually the moment 
for which all of Israel's history has been the preparation. But as always, people were divided then, just as they are today. There are those who sing his praises and exalt his name, and there are others who say, what a load of rubbish. Do be quiet. Can't possibly be true. Where do you find yourself this morning? Jesus claims to be the King of Peace, the Lord of Glory. Thirdly, who is this Jesus? He is the Sovereign of the City, in verses 41 to 44. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now what an amazing conflict of emotions there is here. This is actually the the climax of Jesus' popularity during his earthly ministry. It doesn't get any better than this while he's on earth. Thousands of people are giving him the most magnificent welcome as he comes into Jerusalem. And yet, at the moment of his greatest triumph, Jesus weeps. His his heart is, is filled with pain because he foresees what's going to happen. Verse 42, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus is saying, this is a day of peace. I'm riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey as a sign of peace. And I'm offering you peace with God through the blood that I'm going to shed for you on the cross. But Jesus already knows that offer is going to be rejected. And the consequences are going to be, quite literally, too terrible for words. Why will these things happen? Well, glance down to the last part of verse 44. Jesus says these awful things are going to happen to you because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Now, that's a very interesting uh, sentence because in the ESV and in some of the older translations, the word is visitation. And this is a really, really important theme that runs all the way through Luke's Gospel. Uh, The the earthly ministry of Jesus was God's visitation. God coming to us. And if you cast your mind back to Luke chapter 1, which we did six years ago, so you probably can't remember it, uh, Zechariah there speaks about the ministry of Jesus in these words. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. That's the ESV. The the NIV says he's come and redeemed his people. But the ESV is the right translation. So one of the themes running through the Gospel of Luke is that the ministry of Jesus is a royal visit. And when the Lord visits his people, what does he do? He redeems them. He buys them back 
from slavery to sin and death and he offers them peace with God. And Jesus says that the saddest thing of all is when God visits Jerusalem in the person of Jesus with this fantastic offer of peace, Jerusalem rejects it. They simply don't see who Jesus actually is. And by rejecting God's offer of peace, what they are in effect doing is choosing the terrible things described in verse 43. Just put your nose on verse 43, will you? Jesus says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Now, my friends, if you don't know your history, let me tell you, that is precisely what happened in AD 70. The Roman legions under Titus uh, destroyed Jerusalem and the people of Israel were scattered. Very interesting if you think about it. Uh, The walls of the city couldn't keep out the enemies of the people who would not receive the king of peace. That was the tragedy. And notice this, it was their children's generation who suffered the most. If you uh, have a stomach for it, I don't altogether commend it because it is depressing, but the The Jewish historian Josephus records the catastrophe of AD 70 in graphic detail and the suffering was truly appalling. And seeing all of that, everything that's going to happen, Jesus says, that's what you've chosen because you've rejected the King of Peace. Because you didn't realise that this was the day of God's visitation. And so he weeps. Notice that he's not ranting and raving. He doesn't even blame them. He just weeps because Jerusalem is blind and ignorant. Like every human heart and every home that will not open to the King of Peace. And I think that what Jesus says in verse 42, are probably the saddest words in the whole of the Gospel. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Friends, it would be very sad, wouldn't it, if there were somebody in church this morning to whom Jesus is saying something like that. Saying, you've read the Bible, uh, you've talked to Christians, you know it's true. And yet there's something in you that says, I I don't want Jesus to be my king, I will not have him to be my saviour. And my friend, if that is you, can I say to you this morning that if you don't know Jesus when he comes in peace, you most certainly will know him when he comes as judge, because we all will. There is no escaping Jesus Christ. We will all face him one day 
And if we don't recognise the time of God's visitation in peace now, we are storing up for ourselves utter ruin. Because the ruin that Jerusalem experienced in AD 70 is a picture of the personal ruin and the eternal loss that will be suffered by everybody who refuses to crown Jesus as king. So my friend, don't close your eyes, don't hide your face from him, don't resist his kingly authority. He is the sovereign of the city and he has every right to be the ruler of our lives. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the King of Peace. He's the Lord of Glory. He is the Sovereign of the city. And lastly, he is the Master of the Temple. Verses 45 to 48. Yes, as Jesus entered the city, he did indeed go straight to the temple. The temple, of course, was God's house. Uh, For nearly a thousand years by this time, it had been the place where God had been specially present in the midst of his people. And that's why Jesus went straight to the temple. And once again, consciously and deliberately, he is fulfilling a really important Old Testament prophecy. Keep a finger in Luke 19. Turn back, please, to Malachi chapter 3 on page 675. Malachi chapter 3, page 675. Uh, This time it's the right-hand column and the top of the page. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Um, That, of course, was fulfilled, wasn't it, in the ministry of John the Baptist? I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. So Malachi's message, you see, was that after John the Baptist, the Lord would come. And Malachi says that he will suddenly come to his temple. And now in Luke 19, it's happened. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He has gone straight to the temple. And Malachi says that the day of his coming, the day of his visitation, will be a day of refining. It will be a day of purifying. And he asks, who can endure it? Who's going to be able to endure a single day of his penetrating examination. So what did Jesus find when he got to the temple? Well, come back to Luke 19. He found people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. 
What he actually found was that the religious leaders had set up a market, a street market, if you like, in the court of the Gentiles. Now, elsewhere, I need to tell you that we're told you could buy uh, an animal for uh, sacrifice, but in order to do that, you had to exchange your ordinary currency for temple currency. And you had to do that, like Bitcoin, I suppose, you had to do that at the exchange rate decreed by the temple authorities. And naturally, there was a huge margin worked into the exchange rate. So Jesus found that the religious leaders were way more interested in making money than in making people right with God. The court of the Gentiles, which is where the nations should have come and been able to hear God's word being taught, had been turned into a market. Because, quite frankly, the religious leaders couldn't care two hoots about the nations. As far as they were concerned, religion was a profitable business and the people of God were a captive market. And in verse 46, Jesus says, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. Notice there, will you, that Jesus refers to the temple as my house? That's because he is the master of the temple. And one wonders what the master of the temple might say about the commercialisation of so much Christian activity today. The flashy buildings, the high salaries paid to an elite minority, the huge volume of Christian media on sale often for high prices, the flashy conferences. What would, I wonder, the master of the temple say about that? Well, Jesus gave them the opportunity to repent. He came to claim his rights as the master of the temple. But the temple authorities liked things just the way they were, thank you very much. Their power, their status, their money. And so, of course, their rival had to be eliminated. Verse 47, I think, is an extremely moving verse. Every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Now, that is quite breathtaking, isn't it? Don't you think? Do you remember right at the very beginning of his ministry, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go and teach in all the other villages because that's why I've come. And that's what he did over and over again, day after day after day. doesn't give up. He's not demoralised. He isn't threatened. Every day he's there in the temple teaching. I mean, just think about this with me for a moment. If you had been in Jerusalem in AD 33 at the time of the Passover, you could have sat at the feet of the Son of God, God in the flesh, and heard him teach the word. Now, no doubt many people did that. And you would expect, wouldn't you, the religious leaders to be there in number listening to him. Wouldn't you expect that? 
Drinking it in, taking notes, having discussion times, listening to the message. But no, they wanted to kill him. And it would be just the same if he were here today. If God himself came from heaven to Cape Town this afternoon, some, some would come and listen. Multitudes wouldn't bother. And while God was teaching, some would even be plotting to get rid of him. But not if you know who he is. If you know he's the king of peace, if you know him as the Lord of glory, if you recognise him as the sovereign of the city and the master of the temple, then wouldn't you want to sit at his feet listening to him? Of course you would. So verse 48 is fascinating, isn't it? The religious leaders can't actually get rid of him. Why not? Because all the people hung on his words. Now, my dear friends, that is the test. That shows whether you know who Jesus is. Do you hang on his words? I mean, we've got a whole book of them. I do want to say, you know, it, it is very, very easy, isn't it, to come to church and to say, yes, he's the king of glory. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But do we hang on his words? Do we actually let Jesus talk to us through his book? Do we give time to it? Do we actually strive to understand it? Do we read it day by day by day? Or is the truth that we're actually trying to stifle his words? Because we would actually rather have our own brand of religion than submit to the Lord of glory. What is your attitude to Jesus? The test is very simple. It's whether or not you hang on his words. If you do... That means you know that he's the king of peace and the lord of glory and the sovereign of the city and the sovereign of your life. And so as we prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas, as we prepare to celebrate the, the royal visitation, which is what Christmas is all about, I can't think of a better moment for us to open our hearts personally to him this morning. Shall we pray? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of glory and the King of peace. You are the sovereign of the city and the master of the temple. You are our God, our Lord, our Saviour. I pray that we may not just say it, 
but that we might mean it from the bottom of our hearts. Help us to open up every area of our lives to your Lordship. And where you need to clear out the things that are defiling your temple, which is our body, the the temple of the Holy Spirit, do it, we pray, today. Lord, come and drive out the things that are trivial and unimportant, the things that spoil your work in us. Make us a place where you want to live, Make our hearts a place where Christ is enthroned as King so that during this week we might give you the glory that is due your name. Praise you for your love and grace towards us and for your great sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save sinners like us. Amen.